0: So welcome. Tonight we are finishing the book of Ruth, which is a little book hidden in the Old Testament um, with a very powerful message, and as Holly said, the two themes that come out of this book are the themes of refuge and redemption, refuge and redemption. And we've been trying to explore that and find how God is a refuge for people. Um, When people come to know God, um, there's a safety, there's a security, uh, like a fortress, when we come to know him, to a place of protection. And when we come to know God, he also is someone who sets us free. He breaks chains that bind us. He sets us free from all different aspects of our lives that are holding us back. And so freedom, refuge are the two themes that we've been looking at. But in the book of Ruth, of course, Um, This girl, whose name was Ruth, that we've been looking at, she experienced that in a literal or even a physical sense. She was brought into the community of Israel. Um, She was a refugee, came from another country into Israel. She'd lost her her husband. um, And so she was poor and very vulnerable. And she was welcomed. She was brought into the community. She was given a safe place to live and work and um, we'll see in just a moment what eventually happened to her. So very quick recap, some of you are here for the first time, I know that because you've told me you've missed this series, so the 60 second recap of the last five weeks, Uh, here we go. So in week one, we looked at the beginning of Ruth where there was a famine in the land of Israel, this family. Uh, of Naomi, her husband, and her two sons left and went south to the country of Moab, which borders Israel, but there was a lot of conflict, hostility between the people of Israel and Moab. They were not good friends. During that act two, Naomi uh, loses her husband, who dies, then both of her sons die, and Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Orpah stays in Moab, but Ruth decides to return to Bethlehem with Naomi to support her mother-in-law. And she makes this wonderful statement as she comes back. She says to Naomi, your God will be my God. And Naomi uh, accepts Ruth and Ruth is going to um, seek the God of Naomi, the God of Israel. And that's really what's happening in the book. Act number three, the barley harvest, the springtime. The barley is being gathered and Ruth goes out to work because uh, she's poor. She's allowed to gather um, barley and other crops from the edges of the fields. The Jews were told, do not gather all around the edges, but leave some for the widows, for the poor, and for the foreigners among you. And so she starts to gather food for her, uh, her mother and herself. And she happens to be working in the field of a man called Boaz. Who appears in chapter 3, chapter 2, chapter 3. Act 4, Boaz and Ruth uh, form this relationship where Boaz seeks to protect her. He provides for her in all kinds of generous ways, and Ruth takes a risk. She goes up to this place called the threshing floor, where they would thresh out all of the the wheat and gather it in. And as Boaz is lying down sleeping, she comes up at his feet, and she takes the edge of his coat, and she puts it over herself. And we learned in in that week that that's the same word that's used in chapter 1 for how Ruth comes under the wings of God. Boaz says, you have come under the wings of God of the Almighty. And that word for wing is the same word for the coat. And so she wants to be protected. She wants uh, Ruth Boaz to help her and to rescue her. Boaz accepts that challenge and he um, redeems, he purchases uh, Naomi's property that was lost. He buys it back, he has the means to do so. And not only does he do that, uh, rescuing them from poverty, but he takes Ruth as his wife. And that's what Adele was sharing with us last week. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, There's a little bit in the uh, extra that I'm going to look at tonight at the end of chapter 4. So I'm going to read with with you from Ruth chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 11. This is what it says Then the elders and all those at the city gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home. And here they're talking to Boaz. They're talking to the man who had set them free, who had just married Ruth. They're they're really praying a blessing, pronouncing a blessing on him. May the woman who came into your home be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, I realize you won't know a lot of these names, you won't know the context, but don't worry, we're going to get into these verses in just a minute. And then the author goes on. So then Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The text literally says she nursed him and and nurtured him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. If you forget everything else I say to you tonight, which is very possible, there's one thing I want you to carry with you when you leave tonight, and it's the bit in red. You and I are part of something far greater than we can ever imagine. That's not just the lesson of this chapter tonight, I believe that's the lesson of the book of Ruth. This story is part of a bigger story, a much bigger story, and so are our lives. The ups and downs of our lives, the happy time, the joyful times, the painful times, the struggle, the disappointment, the heartache, everything in our lives is caught up in a bigger, grander story. We don't often see that story worked out. There's times in our lives where God gives us a glimpse and we go, oh wow, now I get a glimpse into what God's doing. So that's what I want you to take away tonight. You and I are part of a much, much bigger story that's been going on uh, since the creation of time. There's lots of verses in the Bible I could quote you to um, summarize that, but here's two. First of all, 1 Corinthians 2, and verse 9 says no eye has seen no ear has heard no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him it hasn't even entered our minds the greatness the plans that God has for us and so often we forget that couldn't not use Romans 8:28 similar theme we know that in all things all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. In other words, when God calls us, it's not always into a life of joy and happiness and peace. Sometimes it's painful in life. But if we've been called into God's purpose, there's that idea of plans and purposes that God has, and if we can learn to love God, God will work in all those circumstances in our lives. But I want to go back and I want to tell you a story tonight which um, I have learned through my good friend, Andy Harding. When I came here, well, before I came here, Andy did a bit of spring cleaning and was going into the the bowels of this building and he found a document, he found a pamphlet, about 20-page pamphlet uh, giving the history of this building. Andy gave me a copy. So I want to tell you a little bit about this building and the person who founded this building that we're meeting in tonight. Began back in the 19th century. And uh, the Methodists were a Christian group who were here in Edinburgh. They weren't in this building. They were over initially in, near Carlton Hill. They had a place which became the general post office. Then they moved to Nicholson Square where they are today. Uh, But the Methodists were growing. They were a very evangelistic group, and they were reaching out, and they wanted somewhere bigger. But not only did they want somewhere bigger, they wanted to call someone to lead them in mission. And a group called the Methodist Synod saved up some money. They saved up 300 pounds, 100 pounds for three years to employ this guy. The man on the right of the screen is called the Reverend George Jackson. He had just recently graduated. He had um, been ordained to be a Methodist minister. And in 1888, 23 years old, this guy, George Jackson, came up to Edinburgh. He had a vision. He had a passion. He had a heart for people. He had a love for people, a love for for God's Word, and to get it out and to share the good news of Jesus with others. And he came here with that vision. Um, But they had no building. They had no congregation here, uh, only a committee with a big idea to plant something in the center of Edinburgh. And Edinburgh was developing. There was no Morningside and all of that. All of that was developing at this stage. And he had this big vision. So he started a service, not here, in a hall called the Albert Hall, which is over in Shandwick Place in the west end of Prince's Street in 1888. By 89, they had 50 registered members. By 1890, they had 100 members. By 1891, they had 200 members, just over 200. By 1892, they had nearly 300 members. By 1895, they had 500 members. By 1897, they had 700 members who were meeting in this little rickety hall over in the west end of Prince's Street. But that's only half the story. That was just the official members. The actual congregation was way larger than that. Most of the year, anywhere from 1,500 and 2,000 people met every Sunday to hear George preach the good news of Jesus in that hall. And we know that because that's how many hymn sheets they printed every week. In addition to the services, um, he also started up a temperance society, which is an organization for helping people struggling with alcohol abuse. He started a Sunday evening event for young people. He started a men's meeting. He started a midweek boys club and girls club. Um, And uh, in the records, there's this one rather humorous bit where the one thing that the Methodists were really disappointed with is that they couldn't attract more than 100 people to the prayer meeting. Okay, they could only get 100 people to come to a prayer meeting and that was not very good in those days. In less than a decade, the Methodist mission, as it was called, had become one of the largest congregations in the whole of the Methodist movement in the world. And it was here in Edinburgh. But Jackson was not finished. He wanted a building. He wanted a place of their own where they could really use it to to do even more in the city of Edinburgh. So he started praying and talking to people. And he realized it was going to cost a lot of money. It was going to cost about 50,000 pounds. So week after week, after a Sunday, when he would preach, he would get his pack his bag, get on his horse, and he would travel all over Britain. And he would share with people, business people, anyone who would listen to him, to raise funds to start this mission here in Edinburgh, in the center of the city, and to put this building up. Just a little aside at this point um, for all of you who are here. Um, We last week had a a church meeting. Some of you, I know quite a few couldn't make it. And Louise, one of our members who works with the treasury team here, the finances, was giving an update on where we stand. And this year we do have a shortfall, but not just as a shortfall. We have visions and plans for next year to do so much more. We want to run alpha courses. We want to provide for all of our our care ministries that happen in the church. If possible, we'd like to extend a couple of staff members their their contract, but we don't have the funds to do that. And approximately 60% of our church here gives on a regular basis through standing orders, by gift aid, et cetera, which means 40% don't. So if you're part of that group who has not yet signed up to do that, we would really, really love it and appreciate it if you could do it. It's very easy to do. Go on the website, go to the section that says give, it gives you all the details of how to do it. It's very simple. Um, We did it this week, we registered um, and I encourage you to do that. If that's a, a little amount, whatever you can afford, or if you can give more, then please do it. If you're already doing that, thank you so much for all that you're giving. So back to George Jackson. Um, Eventually, they got a piece of land, and this was it. There was no building on this land. This land was set aside for a tramway depot. This is going to be the place where all the trams came and were kind of parked. And uh, Jackson thought this would be a great place to have a church. So he goes to a guy called Mr. Cooper, John Cooper, who was a Presbyterian, but he was a Christian, obviously, and he came to, to hear George Jackson preach. And the two of these guys had a plan, and John Cooper worked for the equivalent of the city council back then, and he freed up this land so that it didn't go to become a tramway depot, it was going to be released to the Methodists. They got the land for 20,000 pounds, they raised the other 30,000 pounds, and on Thursday, October 17, 1901, this building was open and dedicated to the glory of God with thousands of people here. On Friday, uh, 1st of November, Jackson decided to have a service for all the workmen who had built the building, and over 700 workmen came to hear George Jackson preach the gospel in this building. Then that Sunday, the third, he held a special service for children and young people and every child who came into this building got a special souvenir mug. (laughs) On the first anniversary, one year later, 1,250 people came here on the Sunday morning. 2,300 people. 2,300 people packed into this building on the Sunday evening, and they estimate that they turned 500 people away from the building. There were so many people who came here to hear the good news of Jesus and be part of this community. But he was so creative. Now, I'm going to share a few things with you that might sound a bit cringy, a bit like, why would he do that? But in his day, a hundred years ago, this was radical thinking. He came up with this idea called catch my pal, (laughs) catch my pal, my friend, and he encouraged everyone in the church to invite their workmates to one of these events that he did. The men's gathering, the ladies gathering, the Sunday service, and some of the events. And people started inviting all their friends. In 1903, he started up Saturday evening concerts, and this building became the main concert venue in all of Edinburgh until 1913 when the Usher Hall was built. He sold kind of an early cinema exhibitions when cameras were being invented. He did things called gospel lantern presentations. I haven't got a clue what they were, but it sounds cool. Uh, he He was the very first person in Scotland to have a Christmas service. They didn't have Christmas services. They didn't even celebrate Christmas, and there was no Christmas wasn't a public holiday in Scotland until the 1960s. This guy was like radical in his thinking. He introduced a penny savings bank, encouraging people to save their money so they could pay for things and not waste their money. In the autumn of 18, 1905, he suffered a breakdown, a serious breakdown in his health. His health was deteriorating. He tried to keep going, but in 1906 he was forced to resign. In September of that year, he emigrated to Toronto in Canada, and he was able to continue for another seven years before eventually he died at the age of about 42. One writer says this about George Jackson. His figure was slight, his voice so unassuming, his health always poor. Yet his sermons were always to the point. He would regularly bring in a newspaper and lay it out on the platform on a table in front of the church, and then he would open his Bible and refer to the newspaper as he preached from the Bible. The only theology he was interested in is that which could be worked out in people's everyday lives. The gospel he preached met the person's deepest need. He touched people's lives at every point you could imagine, for he preached a Savior who was able to save people to the uttermost. Why am I telling you that story? Because that is the foundation for this building. And he died so prematurely. But George Jackson had no idea what eventually would happen. Years later, a hundred years later, as the Methodist movement went into decline, just over 12 years ago, when they were beginning to sell this building, the Baptists showed up. You guys showed up, some of you who are still there. And, and, and we took over this building. Um, and the gospel continued and mission continued in the same vein. What I'm saying is you, you have no idea at times how God is going to bless what you're doing. But this was a man of vision and passion, and we carry that on today in this building and beyond this building through Edinburgh. But let's go back to Ruth. At the beginning of the series, Andy Harding was preaching in chapter one, and he talked about the pain and the sadness that uh, Naomi went through. In chapter one, these are some of the words that Naomi said. She'd lost her husband, she'd lost her sons. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me bi- the bitter one. Because and listen to these words, these are very powerful words the Almighty One has made my life very bitter. Have you ever said that to God? Would you ever say that to God? Would you be bold enough? You might say it to yourself. You might say to other people in secret, but would you say to God, God, I feel that you've made my life bitter. I went away full, but you, Lord, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. Yahweh has afflicted me. is the name for God in the Bible. The Almighty One has brought misfortune upon me. That is scandalous language. That is bold, bold language. God did not judge her or condemn her or rebuke her. God is able to hear it when we're frustrated. In fact, God yearns for us to say these words. If Jesus could cry it on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus could do that, it's okay for us to call out to God at times when we feel broken and even bitter because of what's happened in our lives. That's what she felt. But God had not abandoned her. He had not forsaken her. God had a plan and a purpose for Naomi's life. So tonight, let's go back to the text and let's see the blessings, okay? What did God do? As we wrap this all up, at the end of the story, how did God bless this woman Naomi? How did he bless Boaz and Ruth? What did God do in the end of this story to show that he hadn't forsaken his people, that he hadn't left them, and that he doesn't do that for us? Blessing is one of those Christian words, isn't it? You know, like we use it all the time, but what do we mean? Oh, God bless you. You know, blessings upon you. I pray that the Lord would bless you. But what does that really mean? The word blessing means to open up, okay, to open up possibilities, to open up opportunities. It's like a door that's shut and when, it, when we're blessed, the door opens up. The opposite of blessing is cursing, which restricts and holds things back that they can't happen. Blessing is, is God doing something that only God can do. And what we're going to see in these, in these verses I'm going to read to you are the ways that God opened up new possibilities. He did things in the life of this woman. Blessing number one in verse 11. May Yahweh make the woman who has come into your house, again talking to Boaz, be like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the house of Israel. Who's Rachel and Leah? I don't have time to go into that story, so glad that Andy's here tonight. If you want to know the story of Rachel, Leah, and Jacob, Andy can give you a full account of what happened and why Jacob had two wives, okay? So if you don't know that story, go see Andy. He'll tell it to you. Rachel and Leah were the wives of a man called Jacob, and together they produced 12 children, 12 boys. Um, And each of those boys became leaders in the land of Israel. In fact, they became the foundation for what are called the 12 tribes of Israel. So through these two women, God brought about the nation, the tribes of Israel. And what they're saying to Boaz is, may this woman, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah. May God bless her in the same way He blessed Rachel and Leah and bring forth you know, someone from her womb who's going to change this country and change our land and make a difference. So that's the first blessing that he, they, they prayed and pronounced upon him. The little word there that I've underlined for make in, in the Hebrew, um, they, we really struggle to translate it in, in the Old Testament. Make is too general a word. It's the idea of enabling something to happen that can't happen. It's not just to make it, it's like do something, God, that only you can do, and if you don't do this, it won't happen. God, make it happen. And we're going to see, you'll see it underlined a few times. Blessing number two. They come and they say, Boaz, may you have a reputation of strength. In the the NIV, it's a wee bit weaker than that. It says, um, may you become famous. But it's more than that. May you be a strong man. When people think of you Boaz, may they think of you as a good man. A godly man, a firm guy, someone you can trust, someone who stands strong in God. And remember, these were dangerous, perilous times this book was written in, when nobody stood strong for God. May you be a strong man, and may you be called by the name. Again, the text is quite light in what it says about that, but they're saying, may you be known by God's name. May you be someone that when people think of you, Boaz, they think of God's. Well, but imagine if, if people thought that about us. When people hear of your name or my name, they think that is somebody who really, really follows God. That person, I can trust them. That's someone who just shows me love every time I see them. They accept me. They welcome me. If, if I'm going to believe in God, I'm going to believe in that person's God because they, they are called, they bear God's name. Number three, May your descendants be like those of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Who was Tamar? Tamar was a young Canaanite girl who had been taken by Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. Um, She'd been treated very um, uh, severely. She'd basically been abused, this girl, Uh, but she gave birth to a boy, a little boy called Perez. Um, And the idea here is, if God can do that with a Canaanite girl and bring about hope and bring about uh, someone um, who made a difference, then he can do it again. From the seed that the Lord will give you, there's that same word again, Lord, you make it happen for this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth by the hand. She became his wife. He went into her. Here's the word again, and the Lord Yahweh enabled her to conceive And she bore a son. And so what we're seeing here is God at move, God on the move. God is acting. God is blessing. God is opening up possibilities. God's enabling things to happen. They're seeing it again all through the actions of Boaz and his love for Ruth and how he changed Naomi's life. They're seeing God at work. And they're just praying that, that, that they'll have a little child and this child will make a difference. But it wasn't just blessings on Boaz, there were blessings on Naomi too, this this lady who had suffered so much and lost so much. And in verse 14, the women speak some words of blessing on Naomi. First of all, they say to her this, blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. This is the lady who felt God had afflicted her. This is the woman who thought God had forsaken her. This is the woman who thought God had taken everything from her and she was empty without hope. But now she's starting to get her hope back. Now there's someone who's changing her life. Now there's someone who's making a difference. Now there's someone who's, who's removed her out of her poverty and, and all that she's afflicted with and who's giving her new hope new life, and a new purpose. And they're saying, that man is doing it because God is blessing you. God's at work, Naomi, and he hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't left you without someone to redeem you. Blessing number two. I love this one. NIV says in verse 15, he will renew your life, which is true, but it's a bit deeper than that. It literally says, he will restore your soul. He Will restore your soul. Now, you guys better not let me down. The nine fifteen service did it, got it. The ten thirty service got it, and here's the challenge. Can anyone here tonight tell me a part of the Bible where it talks about the Lord restoring our soul? Go on, don't be don't be shy. What did you say? Psalm 23, excellent. Well done. A chocolate, please, for the girl on the keyboard, okay? Psalm 23, brilliant. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and there's a line in that it says, the Lord will restore your soul. It's a beautiful phrase. It's not just, you know, change your life. It's even deeper than that. Your soul is the very center of your being, the very heart of everything that makes you tick. The part of our life that can feel like it's draining away sometimes, and God can restore your soul and everything about you. He is able to do that, okay, Um, if you trust Him, but there's more. He says, He will nourish you, literally nourish you and feed you and sustain you in your old age. We have no idea what age Naomi was at this age, maybe 70, 80, we don't know, older. And maybe she got to the stage where she thought, my time's done. You know? Um, I remember when I was first challenged to think about coming to this church and I, I thought like, why would they want a guy like me? Okay, maybe I've passed it. Maybe I haven't got anything to offer. And God rebuked me very strongly in that because I believe I have got much to offer and bring here. Um, Not that I'm saying I'm that old, okay? No. (laughs) Um, But God can nourish us. Even in in times when we think our time is up, God has got more for us. And maybe that's God saying to you tonight. Maybe you think, yeah, I'm time to lay it down. Maybe I've I've served my time. Maybe God's saying, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, I've got something for you. Okay, don't lay it down yet. I've got something still to do in your life. So what had God done? He gave her a redeemer to rescue her. He gave her a daughter-in-law who loved her, and he gave her a grandson, this little boy called Obed, whose name means service, servant, to serve her. And some of you tonight are mothers. Some of you are grandmothers. And if you are, or you hope to be one day, uh, you know the joy, or you will know the joy, when you hold that little baby in your arms. When a little baby is born, life just somehow makes sense. It gives hope for the world Um, when a child is born. And here she is, this old lady, holding this little boy in her arms that she never ever thought that she would see. The lady who, who, we don't know how, lost her two children is now given a grandson. But I want to finish with one other thing. I don't know if some of you guys remember the first time I came to this church back in January. I call myself a Bible nerd, all right? And uh, I am. And uh, I'm such a nerd that I love the genealogies in the Bible. Genealogies are so cool. I love reading genealogies. These are the bits that we skip over because it's got all this big list of names and you can't pronounce them all what's that about? It's like reading a phone book. No. Genealogies are really, really cool if you take the time to read them because they're there for a reason. All Scripture, not just the bits we like, all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for us. So let's spend a couple of minutes before we hand back to the team thinking about the genealogy at the back. Okay. First of all, look at the first genealogy that's at the the end of the book of Ruth. It gives a list of several generations starting at Perez, but Perez was not the first. He was the third one in this generation, and it comes down to little Obed. Obed was the boy born to Boaz and Ruth. But you notice, he was the 10th. Why am I saying that? A few weeks ago when I was speaking, God had said that the Moabites will not be allowed to come into Israel until the 10th generation. There he is. And while little Obed was born, the promise came true. And God says that the Moabites are welcome. They can come in. Moabites are now welcome. But there's another thing. Look at what else God was doing. Obed had a son called Jesse, and Jesse had a son called David who became the great king of Israel. Do you see the bigger purpose here? Do you see what's going on? There's a God working behind the scenes in all kinds of ways that we had no idea. When little Obed was born, they didn't realize in in two generations, King David's gonna come, the greatest king of Israel. But there's more. When you jump to the New Testament, there's another genealogy that says these people came into the lineage Of Jesus who was born of Mary and so not only is God preparing the way for a son and David to come but eventually this same genealogy this same lineage was going to continue for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until the Redeemer of the world came in through the line of Boaz and Ruth but there's one final twist to the tale Look at who Boaz's mother was. In the text on the left, it says that Boaz's father was called Salmon. Not Salmon, Salmon. Okay, who was he? Salmon was one of the two spies that Joshua sent in to spy the land and the city of Jericho. Where did they go? They were hidden by a prostitute called Rahab. It's in the book of Joshua. You can read it. Salmon fell in love with Rahab the prostitute. They had a little boy, and that was Boaz." Can you see what God's doing here? Like this story is dynamite. It's amazing. What's all this got to do with us? I don't know where you guys are all at in your lives tonight. Some of you may be going out through a good space, a season where God's close to you. Some of you may be going through a really painful time. Some of you may have all kinds of questions. Some of you may have, your hearts are broken, and you're saying, like, God, where are you in all of this? And I want you to hear tonight. You are part of something way bigger than you can imagine. God's not just there with you. He's not just going to see you through that. He's not just going to bless you, but you have no idea what God's going to do through your life. If you just say, God, here I am, do whatever you want. If I'm another George Jackson, Lord, so be it, okay? If I'm another Ruth, Lord, here am I, here am I. Just do whatever you want through me. Uh, I'm available for you to use. So, Lord, thank you tonight for your words. It truly is amazing. Thank you for the way that you saved this young lady. Thank you for the way you saved her mother. Thank you for the blessings. And thank you that you're a God who, even though we feel you're not close to us, you never, ever abandon us. You never forsake us. You have a greater purpose than we can ever imagine. And I pray that if there's anyone here tonight, and Lord, they're struggling to find that, they're struggling to see that, they need a glimpse of that Holy Spirit, come right now, right now, and open their eyes to see the potential, to see all that you can do through them if they just say, Lord, here am I, here am I, use me.